Hi everyone, Stu here. Welcome to the first Real World Behavioural Science Show of 2020. Happy New Year to you all and I hope you had a great Christmas and New Year celebration. Um, usually this podcast comes out at the beginning of each month, but we're a couple of weeks behind schedule already, so uh, apologies for that. But we will resume with releasing at the beginning of every month from February, and we are kicking off this year with a bang with some amazing guests for you. Uh, so this year we're going to have Dr Tim Chadbourne from the Public Health England Behavioural Insights team, Kim Roberts, who's the Chief Exec of Henry, uh, M. Rahman from Health Education England, Professor Ivo Vlev from Warwick University, and Duncan Selby, who's the Chief Executive at Public Health England. And that's just to name a few. We've got a lot more exciting guests uh, on, on top of those. Uh, I wanted to remind all of our listeners that we're recording this on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, uh, the BSPHN, and to let you know that there's still some tickets available for the BSPHN annual conference, which is a great place to see some amazing speakers, including the Professor of Health Psychology at UCL, Susan Mickey. Uh, she's also the Director of the Centre for Behaviour Change at UCL. And also Professor Eugene Milne, who's the Director of Public Health at Newcastle and Visiting Lecturer at Newcastle University. The conference takes place on the 12th of Feb in Derby and costs just £80 for members and £125 for non-members. And since it's £25 to join the BSPHN, you can actually join and attend the conference for less money than just attending as a non-member. So that means you get all the benefits of being a BSPHN member for free. Head to bsphn.org.uk for more details about the organisation and to book your tickets. Today's show is with Professor Wendy Wills and I think people will really enjoy hearing about Wendy's experience and pragmatic approach to applying behavioural sciences from academia into the real world and that makes her a perfect guest for this show. She also shares a love of Pierre Bourdieu with me but we tried hard to limit our chat about that for uh, about our favourite sociologist so as not to bore you. Um, but I hope you get a lot from listening to Wendy and look forward to hearing your feedback. Over to the show. Today's episode features Professor Wendy Wills, who is a Professor of Food and Public Health and Director of the Centre for Research in Public Health and Community Care in the School of Health and Social Work at the University of Hertfordshire. Wendy is a public health nutritionist and a sociologist, and she works at the interface of social science and public health, particularly in relation to food and eating practices, food safety, malnutrition, weight and obesity, and health inequalities. She's directed several major research grants, including for the ESRC and the Food Standards Agency, and was chair of the British Sociological Association's Food Study Group. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. Wendy, let's jump straight in, if you could just tell us a little bit about how you got to where you got to today. Okay. I studied food and consumer sciences at university um, as a mature student in my 20s, and then went on to study a master's in advanced social research methods and statistics because I was becoming much more interested in research and carrying on in that field. And then I got a studentship to do a PhD at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, focusing on food and eating habits of young people. And I've stayed in academia ever since, really. Sort of, uh, first working at Edinburgh University after my PhD yeah. uh, and then coming to the University of Hertfordshire. And how long have you been at the University of Hertfordshire? Since 2005, so 14 years now. So a long time you've been here. Um, and what is it you do now? Can you tell us a bit about your current role? 
Mm. It's really varied. Um, so I'm Professor of Food and Public Health, so I still sort of undertake research and lead research and very much involved in that area. Um, and I'm also Director of the Research Centre that you mentioned at the beginning, which focuses on public health and community care. So um, we cover research on older people's health and complex conditions, mm -hmm. patient experience, public involvement, communities, family lives and health. So um, I direct that as well. Cool. And, and so you're across, I mean, I noted from your, in, your, your biography that you're a, you're a nutritionist and a sociologist, and you've done a lot of work in lots of different areas around that. Can you give us a, a sort of flavour of some of the different areas you've worked in and how, that's, how those different disciplines have come into that? Mm. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting, I think, over the years. I mean, all the research tends to have a sort of food focus somewhere along the line, whether it's um, young people, secondary school age young people's yeah. food habits, food purchasing, food in and around schools, or malnutrition and older people, or how food safety practices happen or don't happen um, in, the, in the domestic kitchen. Um, and when I went to Edinburgh to work after my PhD, which was a, a, a research unit in health behaviour and change, mm -hmm. um, and I felt very at home there because it was a real mix of social scientists but working in the sort of health arena. Um, and those kind of settings in research were quite rare at the time. We're talking sort of 20 years ago. Yeah, um, yeah. People were either health or social, sociology or social science, and they didn't always meet in the middle. Yeah, so yeah. I loved working there because I, it was a natural home for me to mm -hmm. sort of try and bring those things together, which is what I still do in my current role and current networks. And so that's sort of quite ahead of its time, really, in as much as lots of people are talking about whole systems approaches and... Um, combining different sort of areas of work because problems don't have borders, so why do why does our disciplines? Um, how do you think that's going now? Like how how has the work that you've done then informed what you're doing now? And do you think the industry is sort of now catching up with that and, mm. and trying to sort of replicate? Yeah, that? good good question. I, I think it is catching up. I think it's having a bit of a moment in terms of Public Health England's focus on behavioural and social sciences and understanding the importance of that. Mm. Um, and what we're trying to do and all the different policies and interventions that try to focus on a whole systems approach. Mm. Um, what we're trying to do in the east of England through, for example, out the new NIHR Applied Research Collaboration, which there are 15 of these ARCs across the country, um, and I'm involved in the east of England, and I really do want to make sure that social and behavioural sciences really pull through in the work we're doing on prevention and early detection in health. Yeah. That's great. Could you, just for listeners, because the, 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 the range of listeners goes across industry, academia and public health, I would imagine there's quite a lot of people who don't know what an ARC is, actually. Could you give us a sort of an overview of what that project is and what that, how that actually ends up doing some good in terms of bringing, bringing the, the research into the real world? Yes. Well, it's new. It's one month old, but it builds on the previous um, collaboration um, in leadership and it's, it's about bringing together people across health and social care, whether it's clinicians, nurses, doctors, GPs, etc., physios, um, dietitians, with um, other partnerships like busybodies, like um, Hertfordshire Independent Living, who provide Meals on Wheels services, like the local NHS trusts, social care providers, etc., to really think what are the key research questions that our populations need in the, in the east of England, in our case, um, and what can we do about them? And there's going to be a real focus in our um, ARC over the next five years in implementing and translating research. It's not just research for research's sake. We mm. want it to make a difference. And we really want to test how it can be 
implemented for different populations because it's not a pick it off the shelf, you know, and hope that what you've tested in, in Stevenage, for example, would also work in Peterborough in a, in a different population. Yeah. So it's, it's quite an exciting initiative. It gives us a lot of scope for really creating change for the good of the people that we live with in this region. Yeah, so it lives up to its name. The ARC stands for Applied Research Collaboration, yes. right? Um, yeah, and I think uh, we, we had someone, um, one of our colleagues, Charon, go through the Clark, which was the predecessor, the pre right? Yes. That was, what, what, what did Clark stand for? Collaboration for Leadership in Applied Health and Care in Research. I think I've got that the right way around. Snappy title. Yes, that. that's why it's now an ARC. <laughs> yeah, I yes. see. Um, but, but I think that the point is that the name is, is sort of described exactly what the process is supposed to be. I know Charon's had a great experience of going into a lot of deep statistical detail and having the support of the university from that perspective, but also trying to make sure that that, that really applies in the real world and make sure that that actually sort of ends up doing some real, real exactly. good and not, like, as you say, that research for research sake. Yeah, so that the individual fellows learn research skills and they get sort of mentored and supervised by, by academics, but mm. they take it back into the real world. You know, we want these people yeah. to, to, to skill up but also use that knowledge back in their organisation mm. and, again, sharing that across partners across the region. And, as, and some feedback for that, Charon came back and did that exactly with us. So we're Brilliant. now using the data. We've now created a data, key, a data team. Uh, they're called the Data Dorks, but um, they, they name themselves. Name. Great. Yeah, that's up to them. Uh, I support it. But, um, but that's, it's really has come back into our organisation yeah. and they're using all of the, the skills that Charon's learning. So uh, I can attest to the fact that that works. Brilliant. I'm yes. very happy to hear that. Yeah, no, so, it does. Yeah. Um, and so, so to move on a little bit, do you want? Could you give us an idea about how um, behaviour change or behavioural science is being used uh, in your industry and across industry generally? Mm, okay, big question. Mm. Um, I think because of the focus or the shift in thinking around mm. systems approaches, mm -hmm. the way that I view it and I, the research that I lead or are involved in or comment on or review, as far as I'm concerned, has to think about as many of the factors as possible that might influence why people act in the way that they do, which is really complex, and we can never take account of everything. Mm -hmm. But whereas previously I think there was far too narrow a focus on thinking, you know, to take it as this extreme, give people an information leaflet that tells them how to cope with their diabetes and they'll eat better and they'll manage their condition. Yeah. You know, that's just one factor in the whole jigsaw of how it might work. So I'm really pleased that there is this shift to systems thinking, as long as it's still considered in the real world, because I think you can take it to the opposite extreme and think systems are really big, you know, we really need to, to look mm -hmm. at sort of policies across a region or um, really broad factors that actually can also be shifted and we need to think about them. Mm -hmm. But actually I still think thinking at a population, a smallish population, um, level and all the factors that influence those people living in those streets in a neighbourhood or a school mm -hmm. or whatever it might be still that's where I think we still need to refine the approach to make sure we're really thinking about people's lives. Yeah no, I think that's a really really valid point and, and it's something that actually is coming up um, I've spoken to a lot of um, people who are trying to implement for example the whole systems approach to obesity and even though it's broken down it's, it still feels quite complex to a lot of people and, and they still, it's, I mean, the, the, the PHE guidance, for example, has got 26 attachments with it. 
I think people just see the, the, the sheer size of that and, yeah. and are worried about the, 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 the scope. Actually, if you read it, you, could, you can get your head around it, yeah. but people are really... They see it as o- overwhelmed, yeah, good, good, that's a way, good way of putting it. And, and they're also n- not sure that they've got the skills or the ability yeah. to do the mapping and all that stuff. Because that, that actually, if you... I reread the uh, Foresight Obesity mm-hmm. Report because it's very similar to the whole system stuff, yeah. in, except it's so much more complex in the language they use. Yeah. But if you look at the system science language, and it is a whole discipline, mm. how do you make that accessible to people in the real world, really. Yeah, I think it has got to be broken down because otherwise you do lose people who might get a lot of benefit from it, but they're never going to be able to work through it. Mm. Um, And I was looking the other day, it's called the Health Inequalities Assessment Toolkit, H-I-A-T, that was uh, published by one of the clerks that we were talking about earlier, um, but it's available on the web. And it's really nicely written in that it it is about systems approach. Mm. It's not many pages long. It sort of gives you a real step-by-step guide on how you might do things, but also then they use sort of scenarios from work they've already done to Mm -hmm. say, so if we were considering this... These are some of the factors we'd think about at this stage. And I just thought it's a really nice, easy way of breaking down something that is a really complex framework for working um, into something that's really accessible for whether it's a community working through it themselves or whether Mm -hmm. it's an organisation or whoever it might be making sense of it. So so that sounds like a really interesting thing for people to use in the real world. So if, if people who are listening want to get hold of that, they can just... Google the health inequality assessment tool? Yes. Yeah, great. That should okay. come up. Yes. That'd be great. I think yeah. that sounds like a really useful resource. Mm. Um, okay, great. So so um, I, I want to talk to you about Bordier. Great. My favourite sociologist. Yeah, me too. Um, but I'm trying to think of a way to do that that doesn't bore everyone. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because I, I know that we could probably go, <laughs> go, go on for quite a long time about Bordier. Um, but could you give us a... a a layman's overview of what what Bourdieu and Habitus is about because I, I've talked to a few people about it now it's come up on the show a couple of times and I think it's got a real place in the public health and general health mm-hmm. and behaviour change sphere but it doesn't seem to have the language to, to sort of easily to be easily accessible so yeah. could you give us a layman's overview? Yes I can try I mean I think at, at its heart Habitus is about all of our lives as individuals, but as social beings and as human beings, we are social, we're not in a vacuum, and mm-hmm. therefore what we do isn't just created by us as an individual. And I think Bourdieu, in his sort of overly academic way of writing about it, tried to show that choice isn't always just freedom of choice of an individual, that we are part of social groups, whether it's in a family or a neighbourhood or a workplace. Mm. You know, we take all that with us through the life course. And therefore, what we do, what we eat, whether we smoke, whether we are physically active, etc., or the way we manage a health condition, are shaped by all those social interactions mm. and all of the determinants, the factors that influence those things you know whether whether it's income and education and housing and job stability etc as well as the habits that form through those social groupings that you're in and they're actually hard to shift because they're so ingrained and they're so comfortable and they're so familiar to all of us we all you know know what food we used to eat as a child and whether you're with grandparents or different family members those things are really important and I Mm. think for too long we have sort of denied how important they are when we're trying to think in a too simplistic way about behaviour change. So Bourdieu, even though he was writing quite a long time ago, Mm. those theories about 
practices and distinctions and disgust, you know, and things that what shapes what we find disgusting mm. is based on our experiences and our knowledge of, of from our, our social experiences throughout mm. life. At much of which is quite subtle and... and um, for example, like your, uh, the way I always think about it is, is it's, it's one of the main things that shapes your tastes, preferences and expectations. Um, and I definitely had a moment when I went to university of, of realising that my aspirations were, they were fixed by my, 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 my upbringing and the people that I was around and the aspirations and their tastes, preferences and expectations. And then all of a sudden I was exposed to a whole new set and... Yeah. It, it sort of I had this moment of being challenged in in what I thought was possible, and I sort of think that's very sort of, sort of built up in the, the habitus and, yeah. um, and 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 you see that a lot with the people that we we would work with. Their their you know the food that they like isn't just about their physical taste buds. Yeah. It's about the way that they've been sort of socialised around food, the way that they've been told what foods certain people like and don't like etc yeah yeah it forms part of our identity you know mm. it is who we are and some critics of Bourdieu have sort of written about how well that that means nobody can change anything you know we're very mm. we're very fixed them from birth mm. and and actually that's not what he meant at all he's just saying it's not a completely open level playing field you know the way that we shift is still based on our previous experience. And like you at university, when you suddenly realise there's a whole realm of new possibilities, mm. the way that you react to them is different to how somebody from a completely different background reacts mm. to them. And the, and the, the, the level and the, the pace of change is very much dependent on those things. And I think if we don't fully just take account of that, then we're setting people up to fail because we have expectations that are not taking account of all those factors and all that experience behind us. Yeah, and another, I suppose another way of looking at it in the in the real world is if you take someone out of their social context and you encourage some sort of change and it works, but then you put them back into that social context, all of that that sort of drip drip sort of um, mm. influence from all of the different elements around them will eventually probably reassert itself, yeah. which is the the structuring structure that he describes that we won't go into too much detail about because it gets complex quite quickly. Um, but I, I, I think if you sit and get your head around the idea of a structuring structure um, that sort of continues to reassert itself, it's something that's, that's you know, it's reifying in a way, um, that, that gives you an idea of, how, you know, if you wanted to change something, how could you actually break into that? Because mm -hmm. um, that's a really important point. You have to break into that if you're going to change... Yes. In the real world, right? Yeah. And I think the way I always view this in my head, and I sometimes talk about it in present in talks and things, is, you know, this is just a huge jigsaw puzzle. Mm. And each of these bits of our lives are different pieces. So if you just focus on only one bit, which is change the food you buy at the supermarket, for example, yeah, and yeah. you don't change anything else, mm -hmm. then you're not changing the whole jigsaw around what you do. So it's not really going to have that impact. Whereas mm. if you consider sort of the environment, the accessibility to shops, transport to shops, different factors that might influence what you put in your trolley depending on you know, what families are asking for, etc., or what, what you've got going on in your life. And you mm -hmm. think, how can you change as many bits of the jigsaw as possible? Mm -hmm. Then you're much more likely to, to have a successful outcome. You know, that's, yeah. that's why I'm so passionate about practice theories, you know, which is Bourdieu and then everybody that's come since yeah. in terms of talking about pr a practice not a behaviour, because behaviour is one element of that yeah. overall practice of what we do. 
That's a really good way of putting it. And, and it brings us back to whole systems, really. I mean, what you just described are elements yes. of the system we need to sort of change. How, how do you think, um, within a, within a p- political context where there is limited funds and you can only do certain things within, that, in the, within a system, um, how do you prioritise the right things when it's not clear how much of an impact a big piece on transport as well as a big piece on education and on individual, uh, you know, individual level behaviour change interventions or whatever. How do you decide how to prioritise a, a, a finite pot of funding? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think one element of that or part of an answer is about advocating for, for taking people with you by showing that you might be writing about a particular policy or a particular level of intervention but trying to still show how it's part of people's lives, you know. And I've yeah. I've consulted lots of times with with policymakers and said, you know, if you can try and show a sort of case study, a vignette, real people, and how this is going to impact them, mm-hmm. or what element of their life it's going to impact, then communities and organisations who work and support communities have got a better idea. Mm of, oh, yeah, no, that, that really would make a difference, actually. You know, the, the bus system is really, really important, not just for transport for getting A to B, but it's so that people can have sort of... They're not socially isolated yeah. and they're getting yeah. out and about. Mm-hmm. They're walking to the bus stop at either end or wherever they're going, getting mm-hmm. some physical activity, you know, and thinking through what impact these bigger changes have is really important because, mm-hmm. again, it's bringing it back to that real-world situation. And do you, do you think that needs some sort of a, a different approach, like a sort of more ethnographic approach of seeing or observing, in fact, um, how... Because you can say the bus provides accessible transport, but, you, but like you just said, you, you, it actually provides a lot more. And I think you see a lot of that through observation. And one of the, one of the podcasts of the past, Rich Sheridan, had said, you, you, you gain a lot from observation that you would never get from interview or just theorising. Do do how does that fit into your practice as, a, as an academic and our practice as, as industry professionals. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. And I heard Rich talking about that. Um, because when you ask people or when you tell people, you're only getting a certain level of understanding um, and breakthrough if you're, if you're trying to change something. If you observe and really walk in people's shoes, mm. in effect, by really getting an on-the-ground understanding of what people say or what people reflect on what they do or what they might change, is, is impacted by things they're not even aware of on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. And my examples in my work are always come back to you know how you make breakfast or make a cup of tea. You don't consciously think how to do that every mm. day. Mm. And if I ask you to tell me how you make a cup of tea in the way you like it, you, you can't reflect on every element of it because you just do it so, so routinely. But if I observed you doing it and I recorded you doing that and then we played it back together and talked it through, yeah. then you're getting a much richer understanding. Mm. So those kind of ethnographic approaches to observing um, and using a sort of different, wider toolkit of, of, of methods to find out about people is hugely important. Um, yeah. and, and some policy makers and some funders do, do realise that and do want to do it. I think there's still a certain level of nervousness because you're not tending to look at large numbers of people. Um, because it's so in-depth and intensive, so you you, you can never look at hundreds and hundreds of people in any one time. However, the the richness of the insights that you're gaining Mm. give you confidence that what you're trying to do would have relevance to people in how you're trying to do it. And so that's a really great point, and and, um, for for people who are in public health or commissioning listening, the 
how do you reach a level of saturation even with uh, a small sample to give you the confidence that you are providing something or you're going to create something that's representative of you know not necessarily a whole population no. but but the, the right population that you're trying to target we tend to talk about sort of um, representation or generalizability in this kind of work in in terms of its theoretical representation so again it's it's not saturating all the different types of people you might include in your study because you, you can't because of how intensive it is. However, you are sort of saturating the kind of different nuanced insights you're going to glean from mm, it. Mm. So again, it depends how you're setting it up and who you're trying to talk to. But I mean, if you were really interested in how socioeconomic status or gender or age makes a difference, for example, and you have sampled from households or people or communities on that basis, and you have... Um, taken a broad enough lens onto whether it's their physical activity practices or their, their food shopping practices or whatever, yeah. then, then you, you do have confidence. And the, the robustness of the analytical approach in this kind of research is as scientifically rigorous as it is if you've conducted a survey of 5,000 people. Do, do you think that's a commonly held view, though, that, that people believe that it's as scientifically rigorous as, as a quantitative sort of approach? Because I think there is a slight amount of snobbery about quantitative over qualitative. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that is um, uh, a myth that I would very happily bust if I knew the right ways to do it. Because I think there's also a tendency um, to think if you concentrate on something small and simple, um, I mean, an example would be if you just look at, say, regulations around takeaway outlets opening around schools. Mm -hmm. Really important to know what the impact of that is. But there's a tendency to then think, okay, well, it's shown that people from certain socioeconomic groups are more likely to buy fast food when there's greater availability of fast food. Great. However, without having that greater understanding, um, so how we actually convince people that it is a scientifically robust, well... Mm -hmm maybe your listeners to this might have some suggestions because I think that that's a job of work. I mm. think we do need to do it because otherwise we're never going to fully get this whole systems approach that we were talking about, fully appreciate practices because yeah. we can only ever break it down into something smaller. No, I, I agree. I, I've certainly experienced that personally in, in trying to develop interventions uh, in, in the public health world. Um, People want quantitative evidence because it feels robust, but actually you can only ask certain types of questions through quantitative yeah. methods, as, as far as I, as far yes, as I can correct. Have, have, have found anyway. Um, and, and, I, and I want to come back to um, the way that you communicate the, the findings of research as well, because it's something that I think that you've done particularly well. Um, when I, 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 and I, don't, I can't remember all of the details, and my memory's pretty, pretty shoddy, but I, I remember coming to an event where you'd done some work with older people, and um, I particularly liked the way that you'd presented the information, because you did it all with voice, their voices, you had recorded them, I think, and you gave, it was almost like through their eyes, perspectives of their, their food environments, and, and I think you took someone shopping and experienced what it was like to go shopping with, with that person, or, be, or being that person, and that type of that type of approach was really interesting to me because it was like a lived experience, yeah. but also the way you presented it, very visual, lots of props and pictures and all that type of stuff. Could you talk about why you did it that way? And, and is, yeah. that a, is that a manifestation of your um, sort of approach? Yeah, 
It, it is, and I think that's something that we're still developing, but I've got much better at translating, again, really using the richness of the data to, again, show people the value of it. And we've, we've had the, the, the example you were talking about was our exhibition called 25 Lives Seen Through Food, based on 25 households of older people. Um, and we did, we use what we call go-along tours. We go along where they go along. So we go shopping with them, we go to the allotment with them, we're there when they get their Meals on Wheels deliveries, et cetera, et cetera, to really see what it's like. And we film them and we photograph them and we interview them and they keep... Um, food diaries and food logs and things and then so trying to use a the, the data are valuable so the more you, use you can make of the data I think you're doing a better sort of service to the participants who have given up their time rather than just using you know interview transcripts for example yeah. but also the 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 benefit of then the people that you reach through exhibitions through we've made uh, two or three films now um, you know three or five minutes long but to really try and highlight the key messages and I think in all the... And we've had s several thousand people now through the exhibitions that we've put on. All They're all to do with older people's food and prevention and malnutrition. We've literally only had one or two individuals out of thousands who have said, I, I don't get this. What, what, what is this? Yeah. I need... And they wanted something much more structured to talk them through it. Whereas what we wanted was for people to really experience from our big photo... Um, boards of that we're taking in people's homes and the video footage playing mm. and we had a kitchen table set up with pictures of their meals on the table to really sense what it's like to be a person in that situation. Even the perspective that the pictures were taken from so for example the height at which you take the pictures of the cupboards was interesting to me I don't know if that was I presume it was purposeful um, but it made me think I'm not a particularly tall Guy, but it made me think, well, if I was a foot shorter than I am, most of them cupboards are now inaccessible to me. Yeah. And, and, and I don't think that's something that you would appreciate no. and, until you observed it. And I think observing it may probably made you think, well, we need to show that that's a problem for this person. Yeah. Um, just, just getting into a cupboard, she needs to step to get into a cupboard. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, the other thing we did at the exhibition was we mocked up spectacles with different eye conditions. So again, you yes. could walk around the yeah. kitchen or the bit that we created that was like a supermarket. I think if you had macular degeneration or cataracts, mm. this is how much you can see. Now try and pick up that tin of soup and read the food label. Mm -hmm. Or now think that if you were using a knife and trying to chop vegetables, just how difficult that would be. Um, it was really interesting because we invited colleagues from the Food Standards Agency and DEFRA and local authority, etc., to come along. And they, I remember one colleague from the Food Standards Agency saying, I can really see now that we, whilst we might be talking about front-of-pack nutrition labelling, etc., mm -hmm. that only works if you can see the label, yeah. you know. And even for people without certain eye conditions, that can be really difficult. And it really did help them to think, OK, how might we change our guidance here mm -hmm. to take account, mm -hmm. to make it universally um, accessible to people mm. so it, we're really pleased with the kind of impact that it's had and it's it's something we really want to develop more is that translation and really enabling people to access the research because yeah. that's the whole point of doing research is to make it accessible to different audiences mm -hmm. so that you know we can help to change practice and policy at a, a sort of really local or regional or a national level yeah, no, I, I just think it's really... Can anyone go and see any of that stuff now? I'm obviously not 
not the exhibitions, but is there... The films are available. We yeah. can make the films available and we have various briefings based on what we've done and we've got websites where you can sort of see the exhibitions that have been put on. Right. Um, where, yeah. where could someone go to see that? Do you, do you think, um, I mean, if you went to my uh, university profile, if you just type Wendy Wills Hertfordshire in, in, into a search engine, you'll find my university profile and there's lots of links to the websites and things via okay. that. That's probably the easiest way. Okay. Well, that must be interesting for people to check out, I think. Um, okay, so I think we've talked a lot about how the translation of, um, mm. of research and, and, and your interest in the food environments and mm. stuff, but is there any other stuff that you can think of that, that will help listeners understand how your work translates into the real world? So, like, who's doing stuff, who's doing something with that information that you're putting out there? Mm. Well, certainly through the applied research collaboration that I talked about earlier, because we're really looking at models for implementation from the research that's being conducted and the approach there is to develop communities of practice so to explain that a bit is to think that okay we might have done some research say on um, who does or doesn't go for screening for a particular condition um, and tried to find a way to make that more um, the up, improve the uptake in a particular area. Mm -hmm. If you want to translate that somewhere else and think what are, what's different, what's what parts of a system or parts of a practice are different in a different locality. In order to do that, you've got to set up a community of practice, as we're calling it, to bring together different communities, different third sector, charity, civil um, society organisations, mm -hmm. as well as um, sort of NHS etc., um, health professionals, and think, okay, let me tell you about this research. Will this work here? No. Why? Okay, how can we adapt it? Because it is good, robust research, mm -hmm. so we want to make the best use of it that we can. So we're really sort of excited about this approach because it is quite different to mm -hmm. thinking mm -hmm. through what are the sort of, um, what's the phrase, test beds of change that you might have to use in order to maximise the use of the research because the research is publicly funded. Yeah. You know, we need to get more value from the research yeah, yeah, that we're absolutely. doing together. So in order to do that, we've got to really think creatively about how to adapt it and how really to work with it. So by, by test beds of change, you mean... Sort of more more hyper local experiments, if you like, to yeah. try and see if the, if the research applies directly or if it needs slight modification in a local area. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. So you might need to adapt it um, and do something a bit different with it, um, but that's still going to get value from the research and and push us forward in how we're trying to translate it and change health and care in our in our region. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Um, okay, so um, I want to move us on a little bit now, Wendy. What, what do you think we should be doing more of today to ensure that people in the real world benefit from good behaviour change science or behavioural science? I think there are still barriers to break down. I think we do need to genuinely bring different stakeholders um, and communities together and genuinely listen and want to change what we do mm -hmm. because there are too many barriers too many territorial boundaries you know and even those of us who really try not to work like that I mean I you know I don't feel I particularly have boundaries but at the same time we all work in our own little bubbles mm -hmm. of our own little parts of the the industry that we work in yeah. um, and so trying again to change that and to think how can we fully involve communities so that their voice is heard throughout everything we do and we don't dismiss it or don't say, yes, but they don't know really what they're talking about. That's just their experience and in inverted commas. Yeah, yeah. Until we really get away from that and equally involve different people. 
um, then I don't, I'm not sure how much we can... Well, the, the progress will be slower. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the people who live in the different parts of our, our country um, have the answers because they have the experiences. So they ha- we have to be able to work with them to really find solutions, mm. whether it's through technology, through industry, through different sort of innovations that are around the corner. We can't really maximise what we're going to do with them and change behaviour unless those communities are working with us all the time. Yeah, the, uh, uh, we recently did um, an insight gathering piece, and it was fascinating, and we used an emergent way of working, so we sort of... You, we followed our nose what, uh, and the information that was coming out of, of that. And one of the th- one of the things I had because we, we were doing that with communities and with people who are u- you know would be users etc. <clears throat> and we were trying to use an observational style, but that's very difficult. You can't just go and observe families for extended periods. You can't put cameras on people to watch to, to do the observation. I, I did look into it, um, but how do you involve those people and acknowledge the stuff that they really can? contribute without relying on asking them questions it brings us back to some of the sort of ethnography stuff I suppose because this was my quandary how do you bring those people in ask them questions and then take their answers seriously but also note that there are blind spots that they've got because of the way their behaviours and habits work Uh, that's a great question and actually we've had a really good experience lately Um, I might be able to use as an example we wanted to ask people in in one of our local towns um, young people, sort of teenagers, about obesity and factors that might influence childhood obesity rates. But mm. obviously, you can't ask it like that. That's a very dry subject, yeah, yeah. and obesity means different things to different people. So we thought long and hard about how can we work with groups of young people so that we really... And so that they don't sort of... You know, because of all the sort of um, dominant health messages that eat five a day, you know, try to keep a healthy weight, which people can trot off the tongue. Everybody knows about that, but it doesn't get behind. But yes, but actually, we know that our rates of obesity are too high. So we took a really open approach. Um, We met with four different groups of young people, and we said, we just want to know what it's like growing up in Stevenage, one of the towns in our local area. Mm -hmm. Just tell us anything. What's it like being a young person? And gave them complete freedom. We left the room as well so that they could just talk amongst themselves, didn't need adults there, mm-hmm. um, and then came back in and got them to feedback. And they came out with a whole load of things that then we took forward into sessions the following week to say, and we warned them that we were doing this, so it was set up right, we are going to focus now on weight and obesity because we feel it's an issue in mm-hmm. this area. Let's look at what you said last week. How might these factors actually influence weight? Because they'd come out with things like... Um, we don't always feel safe walking about at night, mm-hmm. but buses cost money if we want to do that. If I get on a bus, quite often the ticket has got an advert on the back for a discount at a fast food restaurant. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a bit tempting, and I'd rather not be tempted, and why can't that be for salad or fruit, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. They all had experiences and perceptions about crime and knife crime, mm-hmm. which we were really quite surprised about. Um, and even down to things like, you know, if I had a bike, I would cycle more. But if I had a bike, it would get stolen and it makes me a target. Yeah. Really fascinating things that then when we brought that back and said, how might that fit with obesity? Really made them think. Yeah. And he's now making us think because they came up with a whole range of solutions that now, again, and as you said, some of the things might not be doable. But actually, mm. we really need to critique them. Mm. And we want to go back to young people now to say, let's, let's think these through in a bit more detail. What is reasonable to do? Yeah. Who should we challenge about some of these things? 
Um, and I mean, the local district council are fantastic um, and really do want to work with us. And they've acknowledged that actually, you know, even something like obesity, we need to be talking to um, Citizens Advice or the Play Service or D Domestic Violence um, Centre for, for, you know, people that are being abused in intimate relationships. All these different services might have some of the answers and certainly some of the experiences. Mm -hmm. and, I, and again, mm -hmm. I think that's a really... If you do that kind of approach well, it's difficult, it's time-consuming, mm -hmm. and it takes longer to perhaps get to the answers, but surely they are then the answers that are grounded in, in these realities. Yeah. So it's quite a brave approach because I think you've got to be willing to take the time and it not get to the topic you were actually interested in for a, a bit of time. But yeah, I agree. And, and I think it's... Um, it's come back to that so it's like an emergent way of working because you, you don't really know what's going to come up so when you write your <clears throat> your funding proposals when you write you know to, to a local when you're working with local authority and they're trying to sort of work out whether they want to do this approach you have to go in with a mindset of we don't really know what's going to come up but that's sort of the point <laughs> and what comes out of it we can then start asking questions about and that will be the most valuable information but you can't sort of presuppose that that's right. So, yeah. And that's why it's risky. Yes. Um, yeah. But I think the more that we try to do this, and then we will see what the results are over time, mm. we can give funders more confidence. I mean, you know, it's the NIHR Clark that was the predecessor of the yeah. ARC that has funded this because they know that we do need to take this kind of broader approach mm. to really get in touch with communities and see what happens as a result. And it's messy. I mean, I always say to PhD students... This kind of approach to research and understanding practices, life, behaviour behavior is messy. Don't expect something very neat. Mm -hmm. You can tick off some boxes and say, yes, I've done that and move on. There are no neat endings and you've got to embrace the messiness, is the way I always yeah, put it, yeah. to really do something meaningful. This really is um, ringing true to me, having gone through this process. It, it, and one of the, it's interesting that you say you have to be brave to do it because I, I do think that's right. Politically speaking, you have to be brave. And, and our experience with our, our commissioners in, in Gloucestershire um, was one of trust. We started with a process of sort of saying, look, we can't say exactly what's going to come out of it. And they were sort of really okay with that because they genuinely wanted the answers, not just the outcome. And so we went through this process and we constantly sort of checked back in because... We had to reassure them that they that, that we were doing this stuff and we were getting this information, out. and they had to check their nerve every time to say, "Have we got this? Have we got? A, are we in a position to go back to politicians and say what we're doing is still worth doing? It's risky but safe at the same time because we're actually focusing on the issues." Uh, and I think that is a really good example of where where we should be heading. But I have to say. I, I, I'm pretty okay with messiness, uh, you know, that's, that's absolutely fine by me, but I felt deeply uncomfortable when we just, I just felt at the, the, the mouth of a huge funnel, and then as I went through the process, I got to a point where I really understood things, then I started to distill it, and then I felt like I was at the mouth of another massive funnel, yeah. and you sort of go through these phases of uncomfortableness, and yeah. then gradually feel more comfortable with the discomfort, if you know what I mean? Yes, yes, Does absolutely. That, did, yeah. you, did you experience that? Yeah, I think it's, it's a roller coaster, isn't it? Of yeah. sort of finding, and you feel comfortable, and then you're way out of your comfort zone yeah. again. But, yeah. but that's exciting as well, and I think that is pushing the boundaries of mm. how 
we need to approach the, the many issues that we need to approach in public health, you know, because otherwise we're going to keep doing what we've what we already know and what we've already done, yeah. and we know that doesn't necessarily work, you know, because otherwise we wouldn't have all the issues we've got to to solve. Yeah, no, very very true. Um, okay, so if we could move on to, um, I'd like to, I just wanted to sort of see what it is you were most excited or curious about. I think you what I what I, I put out a post on LinkedIn uh, yesterday about um, I actually just reshared something Richard Branson said, so I didn't make it up. But it was about people who um, are passionate about what they talk about. And one of the reasons I like listening to you talk about the food environment and the projects you've been involved is the passion that you sort of talk about it with. Um, so I, I wondered if there was anything specific that you were most excited or curious about in, in the uh, academic or in industry or public health. Mm. Good. Yeah, I'm passionate about lots of it, actually. And I mm. do. that's what gets me up in the morning to do, to do this job, I think. Um, I'm really excited to think how we can use social science research more to make some of these changes happen. So at the moment, for example, um, trying to design some research that would really use all the knowledge we've gained about the importance to young people in secondary schools of their social relationships, their friends, and wanting to spend time with their friends, and how that's not always enabled through the school food environment. Yeah. Um, the, the rooms where where people eat, whether it's cafeteria, dining hall, whatever it's called, the service that they get, the, the misalignment of priorities between young people, catering staff, and head teachers and school leadership teams. Mm. They've all got their, their own idea of what should go on, but doesn't always necessarily translate across that actual space yeah. and so I really want to sort of test scientifically whether if you change those aspects whether you do actually make a difference to young people's nutrition outcomes as well as their mental well-being actually because I think that's heavily connected yeah. to you know if they're not enabled to be with the people they want to be with at lunchtime it's not really fitting in with that whole school approach to mental health and health generally so I am really excited by that because I think that would it's it's the proof of the pudding to use a phrase you know of it's all very well having all this great social science evidence, but can we can we really use it? Mm, so this mm. would be a good test of that if we went ahead. I really love that, and I think it sort of gets to the essence of what this show is about. Actually, it's about real world mm. behavioural science. So it's about behavioural science is, uh, you know, I, I've learned over the the course of all the interviews that I've done. It's not just psychology. It is about sociology. It is about a wide range of, of inputs from different different places and I think that sociology is one of those places that hasn't got the the nomenclature in the same way with public health that say for example health psychology has yeah. um, and it's something that you and I talk about you know whenever yeah. we meet and and we we both have a passion for bringing that approach that sociological approach and that sort of holistic way of working into the mainstream and, and creating a language that people actually understand yeah. uh, in public health and in in the public yes I think almost that, that could be. We should write a book called Sociology. It's messy, but it's useful. Okay, <laughs> you know? I'm in. <laughs> because, yeah, because it is. You're, you're right, and yeah. I think that is why, perhaps, as well, that sociology is not. People aren't as comfortable with sociology as they are with psychology, for example, or economics mm. or geography, even because it's not as neat. You know, no. it's about people and life in a way that's more difficult to use you know, in a way that public health might feel is useful, but it's there, and there is so much interest in it. Mm -hmm. I think we've got to help move that along so that people can. It is accessible. The language has got to be more accessible, yeah. and the techniques that we use have got to be accessible 
so that we can find some of the answers to the, the problems we're trying to solve. Yeah, yeah. I would love to do that. That's, that's one of my big passions, so we'll, we'll talk after. <laughs> um, okay, and um, so to come to some of your, your personal life, how do you use your knowledge of behaviour change and behavioural science in your personal life? Wow. Okay, let me think about that. It's got to be good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do in terms of... When I, when, when I look around me, I suppose this isn't ab ab about me but about the people around me that I, I think because I do have an understanding that things are not as straightforward as individuals themselves might believe and I think people beat themselves up quite a lot about oh, I really intended to go to the gym three times this mm. week or I really was trying not to eat carbohydrates which is something I don't get at all mm. but anyway um, and to have that understanding and thinking and I know you've talked about the habit before the habit because actually I think it is it's that setting up of what do you need around you? What bits of a system do you need to work in mm. your own life to make these things happen? And then, and then it's easier to commit to it because if it is something that you want to do, mm. um, I mean, for me, you know, like going for a run is really important mentally, physically. You know, it's something I need to do. So it's just a habit. It doesn't matter that it's raining at six o'clock this morning when I went for a run. I've mm. said I'm going for a run, mm. so I'll go for a run. Yeah. You know, and and I always try and encourage other people to do the same kind of thing. It's thinking what bits of the system. You know, laying out your clothes the night before, setting the alarm, you're going no matter what. Yeah. And getting into that kind of habit, and I think we, we we can do that, but it's having that understanding that it's not always straightforward, and don't beat yourself up over it when it doesn't happen. Yeah, be kind to yourself. That's, yes. You, uh, one of the things I always do with people, because obviously this is on the ground, this is the thing we do most, yeah. and and one of the things I like to do with people is, is flip the question. So if, if this was your sister or best friend, and they had missed you know, the run in the morning or, yeah. or ate the carbohydrates or whatever it is, what would you say to them? Mm. and it's never the harshness that, that they would give themselves no. um, but a lot of people say it is but I don't think it is because I think really it's no. not that big a deal um, and what you're trying to avoid them getting to is that what the hell effect moment and then everything yes. going out the window yes. so yeah, yeah, flipping that question so that you, you, you consider it from a different perspective mm. and just tr trying to get people to be a bit kinder to themselves is, is a good way yeah. of working I think in that, yeah. in that respect yeah I think being kind and being kind to others is... Being kind to others is definitely, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think it's because people are kinder to others than they are themselves that flipping that perspective is... It, it, it works sometimes yeah. with them. Yeah, it's a useful yeah. idea, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, great. I, I think this is a really important area of, of um, behavioural science that you're involved yeah. in and your work is really interesting. What advice would you give to someone who was... Um, found it interesting but wanted to sort of use it in their everyday practice, maybe they work in public health or industry... Um, but they didn't know where to start. How would you how, how would you suggest they got started? It's a good question. Actually, I was having that conversation with somebody the other day who said that they uh, I'd been talking about sort of my approach to to research and translation for public health, and they were saying this is great. And we were talking about how can you get communities to actually do some of this themselves? Is there a toolkit available about accessible sociology and methods that suit? this way of looking into practices, not behaviour. And mm. it really made me think and think, actually, I'm not sure that there is currently, which I'm now very keen that we think about how to develop. Because mm. and the person I was speaking to said, you know, what they really want is for, to sort of empower communities or and the organisations supporting them to undertake things in their local areas in a robust way so that it is taken seriously. You know, and it's not just speaking to a couple of people in the street and then saying, oh, well, Mrs. Jones said, yeah. it's something that's got more credibility. Yeah. And I think that's really important because I think the thing that we do differently as academic researchers 
to say somebody yeah, just doing a vox pop of people on the street for the mm-hmm. six o'clock news it is the analysis. You know, yeah. we're not just gathering some views and, what, um, and observing people and then taking the ones that look particularly nice. You know, there is a very thorough analytical process behind that. And mm-hmm. I think if we can make that accessible... Um, and I don't currently, I'm going to start really looking because I'm curious as to whether anybody has done this, but I'm not sure that they have. Um, so, so what about someone who is interested in the stuff that you're saying and um, doesn't have a background in, in that, but they work in industry or academia? Oh, sorry, you know, really if they work in industry, but they work in industry or um, in, in public health, say, for example, or health generally. How, where could they go to get started with understanding this way of working, this way of thinking? Mm. I think one way, I mean, this is a very local way, but we have our Hertfordshire Public Health Connect website, which mm-hmm. is our collaboration with the local authority public health team um, to really try and showcase different, a, a very gentle introduction to mm-hmm. different approaches to thinking about public health. And we've got practice theories on there. We've got systems approaches and different approaches. And I would say that people need to make links with local academic, well, they don't have to be local, but you know, academics are actually really accessible. Mm. Perhaps we're not seen in that way. But I think people feeling that they can say, I don't understand what you're talking about. Can you use different language, please? But I really do want to understand what you're doing is a really important way, again, for us Mm. all Mm. to connecting. I love being contacted by people that have either heard me speak or seen my name on a website or something, and they get in touch and say, I I don't understand this. Can you explain it differently, please? Is, is great, great because you know I don't want to work in a, in a silo or a, my academic bubble because mm, that's mm. not what I'm here for. Well, that leads us on nicely actually then to, to answer the question where, where can people get go to, to get hold of you and um, so well my university profile has got websites uh, links to the work that we've done on it so Wendy mm. Wills University of Hertfordshire you'll, you'll find that um, we have our foodinlaterlifegame.co.uk website, which actually has got loads of information about the research we've done on um, food in later life and mm-hmm. how we've translated it, yeah. including through this game. Um, I mean, do you have Twitter or LinkedIn as well? Yeah. Oh, the other places. So, yes, I use social media. I do really like connecting on Twitter, actually, because I think it's a really accessible way. So it's W underscore J underscore Wills. Mm-hmm. A bit complicated, but do find me on there. And LinkedIn, you'll find me under Wendy Wills. Okay, brilliant. Thanks so much, Wendy. I really appreciated talking with you today. And I think um, this is a totally different show again, like all the others that I've recorded so far, totally different to all the other ones. Um, I, I don't think we will have bored people too much with Bordia. Uh, we can do that Good. now off, off uh, mic. Um, but I think your work is really interesting in the way that it's sort of ethnographic and it's, it's really sort of embracing the messiness and um, using a real-world approach, which is obviously the purpose of this this podcast, is to speak to people who are affecting change in the real world. And and I just think that if people go and check out your work, then they'll they'll see that there's a a wealth of really interesting projects that you've done, but also a, a sort of a methodology that they can that is quite accessible if they sort of give it some time and speak to other people about it and speak to you about it. Uh, so I hope that if you're listening and you're intrigued by that, do get in touch with Wendy on Twitter or LinkedIn or, or uh, through through the University of Hertfordshire website. And and I think one of the one of the main takeaways that I've got from today is about embracing messiness. And and I really like the uh, the idea that you mentioned earlier about giving people the freedom to talk about. Um, what it's like growing up in an area and then mining those conversations for the things that really matter. So, so even if the subtle things that they're not saying are as important as the things they're overtly saying. 
Um, so I hope that everyone enjoyed that show today and I uh, just want to say thanks again to Wendy for her time and, and uh, contributing to the show. Thanks very much. It's been a really interesting chat as ever, Stu. Thanks. Thank you. Just wanted to say thanks again there to Wendy for a great interview. Uh, I'm sure that listeners will have enjoyed Wendy's pragmatic approach and listening to how she applies academic rigour with a real focus on applying it in the real world. Um, and as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, don't forget to head to bsphn.org.uk to find out more about behavioural science generally, but also to book into the upcoming annual conference. Um, if you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on at Stu underscore King underscore HH on Twitter. Uh, search for me on LinkedIn and follow my blog at www.busybodies.com uh, and click on the Professionals tab followed by the Insight blogs. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on whatever medium you listen to it on and importantly, tell your colleagues and friends about it to help spread the word as there's some really great practice out there and we want to try and spread this as far and wide so that people can learn about um, what, what interesting people are doing in their fields. Next month, we'll be interviewing Kim Roberts, who's the chief executive at Henry, uh, who works to change behaviour in children, young people and families. In the meantime, have a great week, have a great January, keep your resolutions going and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>